You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word, and for it we yearn. Pray that you would empty, not let it return. Father, that you would do a great work in and amongst us, your people tonight. God, we pray that we might see our first coming Christ, our crucified and risen Christ and our Christ, our King, who will come again. We pray that we would see him clearly tonight in your word. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all in this building again. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, there's a couple folks that I think I haven't met, so I'd love to get to say hello after the service if you'd like to say hi. Uh, Clint and I both had birthdays this week, and I tell you that uh, not to like elicit a bunch of like well wishes after the service or something, but to tell you that I think both of us are beginning to feel our age a bit. I turned 37, uh, which now means that I'm kind of straddling from like my mid-30s and my late 30s. I'm not quite sure what that is yet, uh, but Clint turned 39. Yeah, uh, he's, uh, he's very much in his late 30s. Uh, uh, 40 next year, man. 40. Uh, well, my oldest son, Owen, also turned 12 recently, and our youngest, uh, Bennett, is six, which means that even our youngest is actually out of the really little kid phase, out of like the, um, certainly the infant, even toddler phase that so many of you are right in the middle of. Uh, we aren't too far out of those years, but we remember them well. Uh, and just remember the difference between like a one-year-old infant and perhaps a three or a four-year-old. You know, infants, even those three or four-year-old toddlers, they need their parents to survive. Uh, The same is true for both of them. Only a three and a four-year-old perhaps doesn't believe it. I remember like a three or four-year-old son, all, all of them, all of our four would, you know, they'd be able to now be able to put their Velcro shoes on. And then when you're trying to help them, they're like, I can do it. And then they put their shoe on by themselves and get the tongue of the shoe all like, all the way folded up under. And then they're like, actually, can you help me? Like, yes, I can help you. That's what I thought. 
uh, or I can do it, as they're like wanting to squirt their own toothpaste onto the toothbrush, and then it gets everywhere, mess all over the kitchen counter or the bathroom counter, or, or when undressing to get into the bath, I, I don't need your help, I can do it, and then like just arms and heads all twisted up into knots, like can't even do the most rudimentary skills of just taking one's clothes off uh, by themselves. They can open the refrigerator, but they can't reach the milk. They can open the pantry, but they can't reach the goldfish. A one-year-old and a three-year-old are both equally dependent upon their parents for, a survi- for survival, but often a three- or a four-year-old just doesn't believe it. They won't admit it. Well, our text tonight is all about a right recognition of need. And our text tonight is all about a right provision of power. We've been focusing on hope the past two Sundays of Advent, thinking about Jesus as our word of hope from Hebrews 1 and his work providing Christians an adoption of hope from Galatians 4. Well, tonight we're going to consider him as our strong king of hope. I love preaching from the Gospels. Uh, I think probably more than any other place in the Bible. Uh, So let's, if you don't have a Bible open to Mark 10 yet, even if you didn't bring one, you maybe uh, open that up on your phone or grab a Bible in front of you. Uh, Mark 10. Uh, And we're going to be flipping back and forth a little bit from the New Testament to the Old Testament, back to the book of Psalms quite a bit. So uh, this is perhaps a passage that you wouldn't ordinarily think of as a Christmas passage. Perhaps when Taylor started reading, you're like, this is a strange Christmas passage. Uh, And Perhaps, though, by the end of it, you, you will. We're going to think through this short story in three different movements of the narrative. Uh, first is that of a pleading cry, and then a heartening invitation, and then a surprising result. Let's first look at verses 46 through 48 in a pleading cry. Uh, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is continually described as on the way on the way, on the way, on the road, on the way, which is Mark showing us how to interpret all of these stories uh, in light of where they are going, in light of the looming cross, that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He is on the way to the culmination of his entire life. So all of this is true, but it's also true in this text for lots of people, not just Jesus, who are on the way to Jerusalem. Passover is coming, which is an annual time of pilgrimage for Jews all over the region. And these people, these crowds who are surrounding Jesus, would be singing songs and celebrating as they made this final uphill climb to the uh, hilltop city of Jerusalem. These are not just any songs that they're singing, but they sing the same songs every year. We call these songs the songs or the psalms or the songs of ascent. These are songs sung as the people are ascending to Jerusalem. And these songs, you'll find them in Psalms 120 through 134, uh, which is basically the very middle of your Bible. Uh, You'll notice, if you actually just want to find that at the beginning of like Psalm 120, uh, you'll notice at least in the English Standard Version, the ESV that we're reading from here, that these are actually noted as songs of ascent. These are songs sung uh, as people are ascending to Jerusalem. So let's just look at a couple of these. Uh, Perhaps some songs that are being sung as these people are walking up the hill from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, Look at Psalm 122. Just the first five verses. These are songs that all of these people would have had memorized and perhaps can't wait to sing at this time of year. Perhaps like we can't wait to sing Christmas songs in December. In verse 1 of verse, or chapter 122, uh, we read, I was glad 
when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Recognize this psalm, a song that we sing here. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, and the thrones of the house of David. Or the next one, Psalm 123. In verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are, who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now, I don't, I don't know if these songs would have been sung in the same chronological order that we find them in our English Bibles, but I like to imagine that these two psalms, Psalm 122 and 123, are being sung by hundreds of people uh, as they are making their way out of the town of Jericho and up the hill to Jerusalem, uh, including Jesus, by the way. Jesus knows of his impending death at the top of this hill, but he no doubt joining in the joyful singing of the people, dancing and singing the songs that he has sung many, many, many times in his life since the days of his childhood. He is joining in in these joyful songs. But perhaps these two songs, Psalm 122 and 123, are being sung, songs about the house of David, songs about mercy to God's servant or servants who look to God, and as the crowd passes by, then we meet this guy, blind Bartimaeus. Now, we know next to nothing about Bartimaeus, uh, but it's interesting that Mark gives us his name. His name means son of Timaeus. Uh, We see that from the text. Bar is an Aramaic way of saying son of, so like Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Bar Timaeus just means son of Timaeus. And other than Lazarus, I think Bar Timaeus is the only named person in the gospel accounts who uh, is healed by Jesus. Now, this is entirely speculative, but many scholars presume that Mark names him because Bartimaeus had actually become like a leader in the present-day church when Mark is writing this. Like, if you want to know Bartimaeus, well, uh, when the first readers are hearing this gospel, they're like, oh, I've heard of Bartimaeus. He's leading the church in Jerusalem these days. I know him. Oh, that Bartimaeus. Anyway, That Bartimaeus is sitting by the side of the road as the crowds pass by him. And this is probably a pretty good time for someone to kind of plant themselves down by the road and ask for money. The crowds are on a home stretch of one of the most joyful times of the year. Perhaps not a lot different than when people are asking for money, a Salvation Army bell ringer on Christmas time. People are generous this time of year. Probably not a lot different at this time of year for these people. Now, we don't know what experience Bartimaeus has had with Jesus, if he's heard Jesus teach, if he's perhaps heard of other miraculous healings or what, but it seems that Bartimaeus has come to some pretty firm theological conclusions about who Jesus is. This blind man sitting on the side of the road begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, for those who know their Bibles pretty well, this whole son of David thing shouldn't be surprising. Like when, if, if you've grown up reading the Bible, if you grew up 
hearing stories about Jesus, this perhaps son of David language doesn't strike you as weird at all. It's very common in the New Testament, even in the other Gospels. Matthew, for instance, says in the very first verse of his Gospel account, Matthew 1.1, Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then he'll give the entire genealogy of Jesus uh, to show him as the son of David. Matthew, uh, not counting all of the other more subtle allusion, explicitly uses this phrase, son of David, seven other times in his Gospel. Now, we've already seen a song of ascent reference the house of David, but Perhaps hold your finger again in Mark 10 and flip back to Psalm 132, another song of ascent. Starting in verses 11 and 12, where the people, as they are walking up to Jerusalem, would have been singing this. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. This is one of countless Old Testament examples where God promises to give the eternal reign and rule of his kingdom to a son of David. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, or perhaps you've never read the New Testament, perhaps this this, this is new and you're reading this for the first time, but you're really familiar with the Old Testament, or perhaps you're walking along the road and you hear Bartimaeus say this, and he calls out and cries out to Jesus, son of David, and you're like, wait, what? Did he just, I I think that blind guy just, yeah, I think he did. I think he just said that Jesus of Nazareth is God's anointed king who will reign and rule forever on the throne of God. And that's exactly what's going on. For 10 chapters in the gospel of Mark, there are plenty of people who have come into very close and intimate contact with Jesus. He's healed many. He's taught multitudes. He has provided for thousands. He has cared for countless. He has led his own disciples. And nobody has, up until this point, called him the son of David. Until this blind man. Blind Bartimaeus sees better and sees more clearly than anyone in this story up until this point. We've already seen other healing stories of blind men receiving their sight, of deaf men receiving their hearing. We know this, we can understand this, especially if we're reading the book of Isaiah, to know that Jesus is fulfilling and bringing the hope of the kingdom of God. Perhaps now Bartimaeus wants in on this messianic kingdom, wants in on this new kingdom of God that is breaking into this world, that he's beginning to, this Jesus is beginning to reverse the curse of Adam, of Genesis 3. Or perhaps he's heard the crowds singing the words from Psalm 123 that we read earlier, that our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Perhaps these words are being sung by people as they're walking by, crying out loudly then to Jesus. Bartimaeus cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He might as well be singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. O come, thou king of nations, bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now as our Prince of Peace. 
He's crying out. And what happens next? Well, it's perhaps surprising that he calls him a son of David. What happens next is actually not that surprising. In verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And if you've been, if you've read the gospel of Mark, or if you flip back and read the 10 chapters preceding all of this, this kind of thing is very familiar. Even if you look back at the beginning of this chapter, just scan your eyes back to verse 13. And they were bringing children to, to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. We're not sure why the crowds are rebuking Bartimaeus here, but they are following the same pattern of those who are deeming who is worthy or not to come to Jesus. Surely Jesus, Jesus doesn't have time to stop for the beggars. Surely Jesus doesn't have time for children. He's got better things to do than that. He has places to go and he has things to accomplish. Perhaps even if the disciples really understood what Jesus had to accomplish at the top of this hill, they might have said like, hey, sorry, Barty. Like, sorry, uh, you know, he's got the sins of the world to atone for. He's got to go up to the top of this hill and die on the cross for the sins of the world. Maybe next time, bud, but we're on a tight schedule. But they don't even understand that, and they still assume that this man is not worthy to cry out to Jesus. We know from John 9 that most thought blindness would have been a result of this man or his parents' sin. Perhaps they're thinking, quiet, you sinner. You who are abandoned and judged by God, keep quiet. But in the spirit of Psalm 23, or 123, of our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us, Bartimaeus yells out all the louder. He's like Jacob on the banks of the Jabbok, who is wrestling with the angel of the Lord, saying, I will not let go until you bless me. Bartimaeus yells louder. I mean, to even hear the guy sitting on the side of the road in the, first, in the first place, there's essentially a parade going by. Drums and cymbals and tambourines and flutes and stringed instruments, all of these. It's pretty impressive that anyone would have heard him in the first place. He must have been yelling pretty loudly. They tell him to be quiet, and he yells even louder. He is persistent. He's persistent because he understands. He understands who he is, and he understands who Jesus is. Culturally, in his day, he would have been entirely dependent upon the charity of others. Not unlike a, a one- or two-year-old who needs others to provide everything for him. There's no social services to provide for him. But unlike James and John, Earlier in the chapter, in verses 35 and on, unlike the rich young man in verses 17 of Mark 10, Bartimaeus actually understands his immense need, unlike these other characters. Son of David, God's anointed Messiah and King of heaven and earth, have mercy on me. Meaning something like, look, I know that I am not deserving of anything. I know that whatever I have is because of sheer generosity. My sins are great, and I know that I have no right to claim anything of you. But in light of all of that, son of David, king of heaven and earth, have mercy on me. This pleading cry of Bartimaeus should actually be our daily cry as well. The fundamental prayer of every 
Christian. I know that I'm not deserving of anything. I know that anything that I have is out of sheer generosity. I know that my sins are great and I have no claim of anything from you. But in light of all of that, son of David, king of heaven and earth, have mercy on me. And if Bartimaeus' cry should actually be our cry, let's see how Jesus responds to him and in turn responds to us. In verses 49 through 51, now secondly, a heartening invitation. Now, if we know Jesus at all, his response actually isn't that surprising. In verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now, I, again, need to remind you, we're in the midst of a parade. They're singing instruments, and over all of that, Jesus hears him and stops. And likely, the crowds with him stop. The music stops. The record needle scratches, and everything shuts down. Now, this is encouraging to us, or it should be. You realize that however loud the praises, however loud the instruments and the singing were on that day on that Jericho road, they are nothing to the praises and the singing that are being sung to King Jesus all over the world at any time as he is seated on his throne, as people are exuberant and joyful and are singing and praying and celebrating in victory. Nevertheless, this one cry of the broken of the vulnerable is not drowned out. Jesus still hears and is attentive to the needs of those who would call out to him for mercy. He is not annoyed by those who cry out to him. He is not bothered. He's not thinking, oh great, another needy one. Why can't they be all more like these people walking around me, just singing and, more, and happier all the time, more full of victory? No, he's not bothered by that. In fact, he welcomes those who would cry out. He hears and he stops. He is full of compassion. He is eager to hear and eager to respond. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Some, in, some perhaps in the crowd who just a couple of seconds earlier were, were rebuking Bartimaeus now are saying, take heart. Or what we might say like, hey man, it's okay. Like, he actually wants to hear you. He wants to talk to you. Come on, be encouraged. In verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now in these days, a great proportion of one's money, especially for the poor, would have gone to clothing. The poor would likely spend nearly all of their money just on food and or clothing. That's why the robbers in the parable of the Good Samaritan would have also taken the man's clothing, leaving him behind as naked. So it's no small thing that Bartimaeus, a poor beggar, would throw off his cloak, possibly and probably the only thing that he owned to see Jesus. Compare this to the rich young man earlier in this chapter, who Jesus showed that his love of material possessions was just the thing that would keep him from following him, from following Christ, from entering the kingdom of God. Bartimaeus couldn't give one rip about his possessions. If these were the things that would slow him down from getting to Jesus, then get rid of it. 
By the way, we don't ever see Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus even think about this cloak again, or at least Mark doesn't give us any, any, any indication. He doesn't return to get it. Why in the world would Mark give us this little throwaway statement that he threw away his cloak? He seems to be building a case. We're building more and more of what actually a true disciple of Jesus will look like. We'll keep building. What happens next? Verse 51, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. If we're beginning to think that we should be contrasting Bartimaeus to others who have come before him, even in this chapter, well, this now seals the deal. Jesus says to him, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Earlier in the chapter, James and John, in verses 35 through 45, they come to Jesus and they want Jesus to do really whatever they want him to do. And in verse 36, chapter 10, we read, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? The exact same question, worded identically. In two successive stories, Jesus asked two groups of people the exact same question. These Zebedee boys, James and John, they say that they want to sit at Jesus's right and left hand. They want to be elevated to receive uh, power and be acknowledged as with and ruling with Jesus. Such arrogance at this request. Zero humility, zero thought for others, zero thought for even Jesus. Only their own self-promotion. What's interesting in Bartimaeus' request is that it's actually no less audacious. He wants to see, which is no small feat. And even the way he asks it is pretty confident, isn't it? In fact, he doesn't even ask. Similarly to James and John, he just tells Jesus what he wants. He just says, let me recover my sight. There aren't any, like, if you can caveats there, like the father of the boy with the unclean spirit in Mark 9. He just knows that Jesus can do it. Jesus just told him to uh, make a request, and so he does. And so if Jesus asks this question on two consecutive occasions, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to put ourselves on the receiving end of that question. In fact, one commentator on this section says this, what do you want me to do for you is the most important question God ever asks us and the one to which we most frequently give the wrong answer. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from God? What do you expect from God? A prosperous life? A successful life? An influential life? A recognized life? A healthy life? A, a really fun and pleasurable life? A comfortable life? A carefree and easy life? Too often, consciously, or even perhaps, and perhaps more dangerously, subconsciously, we actually do want all these things from God. And like James and John, we then make these perhaps conscious, perhaps subconscious demands from God. And then when we don't get them, we are angry at God. We shake our fist at him and say, how could you when we don't get those things? Remember this quote from a couple months ago, that we are so often disappointed by God not giving us what he never promised. 
all the while ignoring our greater and greatest need, the thing that God wants to give so freely and that we most need to get from him. Now imagine you're Bartimaeus and you've come to Jesus and Jesus has just said, what do you want? You can ask anything. Like the genie has just said, what's your wish? And Bartimaeus says, I think I'd like a pony. Or I'd like to be the mayor of Jericho. Or I would like to be unbelievably wealthy. Or something like this. Or perhaps just more wishes. Everyone would say, like, Barty, man, are you crazy? Are you crazy? He just said you can have anything you want or what do you want? And you asked for a pony? Like, what are you going to do with a pony? That's a stupid request. You wasted it, man. But Bartimaeus is actually not unaware of his need. He is very aware of his greatest need. And he is confident that Jesus can heal him. He is like this one-year-old toddler. When a toddler is hungry, he will let you know knowing that he will not eat apart from his parents' help. And he is confident that his parents will actually feed him what he needs. Not, not candy, not ice cream every time, but what he needs. Now, throughout Mark, physical brokenness is often a symbolic pointer to a greater and deeper spiritual brokenness. And when Jesus heals someone externally or physically, it gives us a glimmer of what Jesus is actually doing internally. Just like Kyle preached from Acts 4 a couple months ago. So let's now see the result of Bartimaeus' confident request. And now in verse 52, a surprising result. Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus heals him. He gives him his sight. Not super dramatically. He doesn't like get down on the ground and like spit in some mud and like put it on his face or anything like he does elsewhere. He doesn't even touch him. He just says, okay. And Bartimaeus can see. Now Mark's brevity here seems to suggest that this little story isn't necessarily because the emphasis is on the healing the emphasis really seems to come what comes after it. It seems to be on what Bartimaeus does after he receives his healing. Jesus tells this guy, hey man, you can see now because of your faith in me. He seemed, maybe he implies like, all right, so you can go back to Jericho now. Live your life, man. You can see. But what does Bartimaeus do? Something surprising. He follows him on the way. He falls in line right behind Jesus. A healing encounter with Jesus, with then a life that is unchanged, is just unthinkable for Bartimaeus. Going back to the life that he had before, no following Christ on the way. Perhaps he would become aware of Paul's letter to the Philippians a couple of decades later, where Paul would write in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And Bartimaeus might hear that a couple days later or a couple decades later and say, yep, that's what I was doing. That's what I wanted. 
I want to know Jesus and share in his power and his suffering and the power of the resurrection. Do you know of your weakness? And then follow Jesus along the way as a result. As Americans, it's really easy for us to not think we have weakness or need or act like we don't. Act like we're strong enough to do anything, like good enough at our jobs so that we can earn what we need to buy what we need and then have a little bit of extra for whatever we want. Healthy enough with good doctors around that we don't ever really need to worry about our health. Busy enough that we don't have to think very long about our shortcomings or our brokenness or our sin. You know what we're doing, though, when we subconsciously speak this way to ourselves. I can do it! I can do it! As we like squirt toothpaste all over the counter. Sometimes the blind see more clearly. Perhaps 2020 has brought for the first time in many of our lives the realization of our need. Our desire for independence isn't just a mark of immaturity, but our desire for independence is really a mark of rebellion. Rebellion against the God who has created you for himself, that you would say to him, I need no one but myself. And like we sometimes do with a three-year-old, I'm fairly sure God often says, fine, just try it by yourself. See how it goes. Or like Lewis says, and we've quoted here many times, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Those who will not recognize their need, the Lord Jesus sends away, like the rich young man. But those who recognize their great need, the Lord Jesus hears and welcomes and responds. He calls, he heals, he speaks to and forgives Perhaps Bartimaeus with the rest of the crowd continued singing now. Now he's seeing and dancing along with the crowd as they continued to sing these songs of ascent as they made their way to Jerusalem. Perhaps singing Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And Bartimaeus is like, yeah, it just happened. The Lord was attentive and he heard If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Hope in the Lord, O Christ Church. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. He will redeem you, those who are coming to the Son of David, the King of heaven and earth, who come to him in desperation and recognizing in humility their need and then following him along the way. He will redeem you, not necessarily from your diseases, from your viruses from your loss, but he will redeem you from your iniquities, from your sin. 
But just as in his first coming, his healing of physical problems pointed to a deeper spiritual problem, after then healing spiritual problems, that of rebellion and of pride and of self-worship and of sin, in his second coming, he will fully and finally fix all physical brokenness in this world as well. Redeeming it all. Spiritual, physical, all of it. Because we are spiritual and physical people that he has come to finally and fully redeem forever. In bringing forgiveness of sins in his life and death and resurrection, he will be with you. Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of your diseases, in your viruses, in your isolation, and in your loss. Until finally he will come to swallow up death forever. Hope in the Lord, O Christ Church, with confident expectation. Wait for the Lord and in his word, hope. Your king of hope has come and will come again. So my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. Yes, more than the watchman for the morning. Let us look and watch in waiting for the coming of Christ and then be ever more secured in the hope of his sure second coming. Because he has come and done the hard part of forgiving sin, he will surely come again to do the relatively easy part of calling us all home. Let's use this time, this one week and a half more of waiting, of the expectation of Christmas Day to, Lord willing, grow in an ever more confident expectation for his second coming. And let's pray toward that end, Christ Church. Our King Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Our eyes will be fixed upon you until you have mercy on us. We pray that you would help us to see you more clearly. That in our own weakness, we might actually see you and long for you in desperation. Father, we pray that you would uh, comfort the brokenhearted right now. That you would encourage the discouraged even uh, in separation and in some isolation and in loss and in exhaustion and in depression and in just darkness of these days, that your light would break through, that we would know and believe and experience you as Emmanuel, as God with us. As you have promised us that you will be with us to the end of the age, even so we look forward and pray and hope and watch that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your powerful name and your powerful work to save. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.